New York City, 2000. Deep inside the Metropolitan Museum of Art, 69-year-old researcher Oscar Muscarella discovered a padded envelope sitting on his desk. He sliced it open and found dusty Polaroids inside. As a museum curator, he'd grown accustomed to receiving images of relics from distant lands. Muscarella assumed this would be some broken pottery or an old coin someone wanted the museum to buy. But when he studied the pictures, his jaw dropped. The images showed a wooden sarcophagus with a stone coffin inside and a mummy. Egyptian mummies were relatively common, but what startled Muscarella was the ancient text carved into the gold and stone. It was cuneiform, an ancient writing system from Persia. Nobody had ever discovered a Persian mummy. He checked the envelope. The return address showed it came from a mysterious antiquities dealer Muscarella had only spoken to over the phone. He wanted $11 million for the mummy, a huge sum of money, but a small price to pay for such a unique piece of history. If it was real. Muscarella assumed it was too good to be true. The mummy was either stolen or forged. He threw the pictures in the trash. But Muscarella was wrong. The so-called Persian mummy was going to shake the foundations of everything experts believed about world history. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a one-part episode on the Persian mummy. Allegedly revealed by an earthquake, the sarcophagus appeared near the border of Pakistan and Iran, a part of the world where mummies had never been seen before. Today, we'll discuss how this one-of-a-kind artifact surfaced on the black market, And we'll examine how the investigation into its origins uncovered a secret smuggling ring that dabbled in grave robbing, mutilation, and murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On October 19, 2000, Pakistani police raided a house in Karachi looking for a suspect named Ali Akbar. After subduing Akbar, Detective Superintendent Farooq Aran and his team searched his home and discovered a suspicious videotape. Like the pictures Oscar Muscarella received at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the video showed Ali Akbar advertising a Persian mummy for sale. While the Pakistani police hadn't found evidence they could use in their murder case, the VHS tape was arguably more incriminating. In Pakistan, it's highly illegal to trade in antiquities. The Pakistani government considers it immoral to sell relics for personal profit. Ancient artifacts freely and rightfully belong to the country and its citizens as part of its shared heritage. 
As such, the attempted sale of the relic was a crime, and Akbar seemed destined for prison. But when questioned by police, Akbar claimed the mummy wasn't actually in his possession. He was merely a middleman. To save his own skin, he told the cops where they could find the real seller. Detective Farouk Iran and his team followed Akbar's lead to Quetta, about 430 miles north of Karachi. They arrested a man named Wali Mohammed Riki, who indeed was in possession of the mummy. The police impounded the sarcophagus and called in an expert for analysis. Dr. Asma Ibrahim, the curator of Pakistan's National Museum, brought a small team of researchers to Riki's house. She told the police to leave everything exactly as they'd found it. The mummy was contained in two layers, the first of which was the wooden sarcophagus. The top of the sarcophagus was intricately carved, and on its outer sides were engraved images of the Zoroastrian creator god Ahura Mazda. Inside was a carved stone coffin. The rock had angular characters chiseled into it, which Ibrahim recognized as ancient Persian cuneiform. Ibrahim felt her heart catch in her throat. Its rarity aside, the mummy was a work of fine art. Whoever this Persian was, they must have been incredibly important to warrant such a luxurious burial. Inside the sarcophagus, the body measured roughly four feet seven inches long. The small figure wore a golden crown, mask, and chestplate. The gold lying over its folded arms had the same cuneiform inscriptions that adorned the stone covering. Underneath, it was wrapped in a cloth infused with hardened resin. Ibrahim was elated. There were plenty of clues to determine the mummy's origin. She and her team carefully transported the relic to the Pakistani National Museum in Karachi and got to work. First, they wanted to learn the identity of the mummified person. Ibrahim knew the answer was likely going to be found in the cuneiform inscription on the golden breastplate and the stone sarcophagus. Unfortunately, Persian cuneiform was an almost dead language. So to solve the puzzle, Ibrahim had to teach herself ancient Persian. Over many weeks, Ibrahim moved between history textbooks and the carvings, trying to make sense of the message. Eventually, she made out a workable translation. According to her, the inscription read, quote, I am the daughter of the great king Xerxes. Mazurica, protect me. I am Redugana. I am. Ibrahim was stunned. This meant the mummy was not an ordinary woman. She was a princess. Her father, King Xerxes, was the ruler of the Achaemenid Empire that dominated the Middle East from roughly 600 to 300 BCE. At its height, this ancient Persian kingdom stretched all the way from India to North Africa. But unlike the ancient Egyptians who left behind pyramids, art, and hieroglyphics, Persia didn't leave many undisturbed royal tombs behind. Because of this, Xerxes' empire remained largely a mystery to archaeologists. So this mummy had the potential to unlock centuries of long-forgotten history. Though historians have references to Rodugana as the daughter of Xerxes, very little was known about her, or Persian burial practices in general. 
One account, written by the Greek scholar Herodotus, claimed that ancient Persians buried their dead much like Egyptians. Priests embalmed bodies in resin and wax before placing them in sarcophagi. But Herodotus's writings were often found to be incomplete or inaccurate. His alleged facts couldn't always be taken at face value. So Ibrahim needed more evidence to prove the mummy's Persian origin. After all, the body appeared to be almost too similar to ancient Egyptian royal mummies. It was covered in gold and well-protected in a sarcophagus and coffin. The smugglers could have repackaged an Egyptian mummy to make it look like a unique Persian princess as a way to fetch a higher price. Ibrahim returned to the inscription for answers, but only discovered more questions. As she double-checked her translation, Ibrahim noticed something odd. There seemed to be several errors in the inscription. It looked like some of the characters had been carved wrong. The cuneiform letters were inconsistent in several places. For example, one syllable in the name Rodugana was written incorrectly, with only one line instead of two. In English, this would be the equivalent of someone writing a lowercase c instead of a lowercase e. Other cuneiform experts verified the accuracy of Ibrahim's translation, but they too couldn't explain the mistakes. Persian royalty likely wouldn't want a member of their family entombed for eternity with typos on her chest, and not just for superficial reasons. They likely would have worried that the errors could jeopardize Rodugana's place among the gods in the afterlife. This meant that either the ancient stone carvers and goldsmiths somehow got away with several striking errors, or there was another explanation that had yet to be discovered. To Ibrahim, the text seemed like a secret that only the mummy itself could reveal. The research team had looked over every centimeter of the coffin and sarcophagus. Ibrahim knew that to solve the mystery of Rodugana, they would have to look inside her mummified corpse. Coming up, the team uses modern technology to unlock an ancient secret. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer and travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. 
In October of 2000, Pakistani police uncovered a well-preserved mummy for sale on the black market. It turned out to be a -a one-of-a-kind discovery, the alleged corpse of a Persian princess named Rodugana. At Pakistan's National Museum, a research team investigated how the body of a princess from ancient Iran, preserved using Egyptian techniques, found its way to modern Pakistan. As the examination uncovered more details about the mummy, the team was faced with new questions. Unfortunately, they were running out of time. As press coverage about the rare mummy continued, the relic became the center of an international scandal. After the first public announcement of the discovery, Iran's government confronted Pakistani authorities. They demanded the mummy be returned to Iran, what they believed to be her ancestral home. They cited the fact that the etchings on the coffin were Persian, one of Iran's ancient languages. Iran's cultural heritage organization asserted that the mummy represented an incredible development in Iran's cultural history. They said they would work with UNESCO to ensure that the mummy was returned to them. However, the inscription was the only evidence of the mummy's origin, so Iran's ownership claim was disputed. Since it was found within their borders, Pakistan's government maintained the mummy belonged to them, regardless of what researchers would later learn. And while disputes continued between Iran and Pakistan, a neighboring government in Afghanistan decided to throw its hat in the ring. The Taliban, who controlled most of the country, vied for control of the mummy as well. The Taliban's cultural minister stated that the mummy had not been uncovered in an earthquake, as Pakistan claimed. They had apprehended a pair of Afghani smugglers who reportedly uncovered the mummy in a province of Afghanistan. According to them, this meant the mummy was Taliban property. The Taliban didn't provide any evidence to back up their claims. They insisted that Pakistan take their word in good faith, so Pakistan ignored their demands. But even within Pakistan, there were arguments about where the artifacts should be kept. In Quetta, where the police first discovered the mummy, locals objected to the government taking it to the museum in Karachi. They wanted to use the mummy as a draw for tourism and publicity. But for the most part, their requests fell on deaf ears. This international squabbling inspired headlines around the globe, and the news coverage caught the attention of Oscar Muscarella, the researcher at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. During an interview with Archaeology magazine, Muscarella told a reporter that information about the Persian mummy had landed on his desk even before its discovery in Quetta. According to Muscarella, a New Jersey-based antiquities dealer named Amanullah Rigi had tried to sell the Persian mummy to him. Rigi sent pictures and claimed to have a video of the relic. Muscarella had tried to verify the authenticity even before Ibrahim had seen it. At the time, Muscarella had asked for samples of the stone, gold, or cloth wrapping for carbon dating and verification. Riggy dodged his questions, which gave Muscarella pause. He knew Iran had a burgeoning black market of fake relics. But even if the mummy was authentic, there were moral implications to the purchase. 
Muscarella was an advocate for ethical archaeology. Many historical artifacts found in museums had been seized by colonizers. These relics were taken from their homelands to put on display. Muscarella opposed plundering historical sites in the name of money and fame. So, he had concluded the alleged Persian mummy was either stolen or a forgery, and he wanted no part of it. According to his interview, he had politely told Rigi he wasn't interested. News of Muscarella's reaction put new pressure on Ibrahim to uncover hard evidence of the mummy's origin. A sample of the wooden coffin was sent to a radiocarbon dating laboratory. It turned out the wooden coffin was only 250 years old. This meant it was not even one-tenth as old as the inscription implied. With this new knowledge, Ibrahim took a microscopic look at the intricately carved box and made another strange discovery. She found evidence of pencil lead. Pencils with lead tips weren't widely used until the late 18th century, and the lead marks ran alongside many of the carvings, suggesting that the inscriptions may have been traced onto the wood. Prior to this discovery, the mistakes in the carvings could largely be explained away. Ancient stonemasons were typically illiterate. They copied text from scribes and scholars. Anyone could figuratively forget to cross a T or dot an I. However, the presence of pencil lead implied that whoever carved the inscription wasn't ancient at all. They were most likely a modern-day artist, tracing letters from a picture. And there were more errors in the inscription as well, mostly related to grammar. But the most alarming mistake seemed to be the use of the princess's name, Rodugana. The daughter of King Xerxes had not been referred to as Rodugana by her own people. This was the Greek version of her name. In the ancient Persian language, her name would have been Wardagana. Meaning, if the mummy was Rodugana, the inscription was most likely made hundreds of years after she died. The story of the first Persian mummy unraveled. Ibrahim had discovered enough evidence to finally draw a conclusion. The mummy was a hoax. Just like that, the focus of the investigation shifted. Ibrahim was now hunting for an incredibly skilled forger. At first, Ibrahim believed the smugglers must have found a real Egyptian mummy and altered its trappings to make it appear more valuable. But with hardened resin infused into the cloth wrapping, it was difficult to access the body to prove her theory. So Ibrahim and her team decided to look inside the corpse first. In a local hospital, Ibrahim placed the mummy in a CT scanner, the same machine doctors use today to look at internal injuries. This gave her a peek at the unknown woman inside the wrappings. The scan revealed that it was a woman in her early 20s. Most of her organs were missing, but one missing organ stood out above the rest the woman's heart. In ancient Egypt, the heart was considered the center of intelligence and the house of the soul. For a body to be resurrected in the next life, it needed a heart in order for the soul to return. So, ancient Egyptian embalmers always left the heart behind in their mummies, and they removed all other organs, including the brain. They did this by sticking a metal instrument through the nose, 
punching through the skull and whipping the brain into a liquid. However, the scan revealed that the woman's brain was removed in a non-traditional method. In other words, Ibrahim could be almost certain that the mummy was not Egyptian. And additional details led researchers to a conclusion much darker than forgery. The CT scan showed intact tendons and ligaments within the woman's inner ear. When a person dies, these tissues decay rapidly. Even mummification can't prevent it. This meant the corpse wasn't ancient. It wasn't even that old. According to tests, the woman died within the last 10 years. This alarmed Ibrahim. It seemed she wasn't just tracking down a forger. It was possible she was on the trail of a murderer. Coming up, the mummy leads investigators to a heinous crime. And now back to the story. In 2000, Pakistani authorities uncovered a mummy that appeared to be the remains of an ancient Persian princess. Nobody had ever found a mummy from ancient Persia, and multiple governments fought over the priceless relic. However, an investigation in early 2001 revealed that the mummy was a hoax. Radiocarbon dating indicated the mummified woman had died in 1996, four years before her body surfaced on the black market. This proved that the so-called Persian mummy couldn't possibly be the Princess Rodugana, and the international fight for the mummy ceased. But the search for the mummy's identity continued, as the woman's origin was still unknown. Luckily, Asma Ibrahim had one big clue, the mummification process itself. Before the invention of modern embalming chemicals, the process of mummifying a corpse involved removing all their organs and preserving the body with salt. To make the preservation permanent, the body was wrapped in resin-impregnated cloth. Some indigenous cultures, like in Papua New Guinea, mummified their dead by smoking a corpse before packing it in clay. Some Buddhist monks used to embalm themselves by slowly starving on low-calorie diets. When they suspected they were near death, they would get into a sarcophagus and wait for it to be sealed forever. Though these examples had occurred fairly recently, modern-day mummification is mostly unheard of, especially in Pakistan and the Middle East. Because of this, Ibrahim and the Pakistani police believed the young woman was mummified specifically for the hoax, but they had to dissect her to prove it. Ibrahim and her team started by removing the hardened outer cloth. The shell of the resin was so thick, it took them three hours to cut into the corpse. Finally, they were able to see a cross-section of the cloth wrapping. Whoever wrapped the body had done so carefully. Each finger and toe was individually wrapped like a genuine mummy. But once the team revealed the body itself, they found the woman's hair had been bleached white, which implied the presence of modern embalming chemicals. They also found her chest cavity filled with powdered sodium bicarbonate, which acted as a drying agent. As they examined the rest of her body, they discovered the probable cause of death. She had a broken neck and spine, 
most likely due to blunt force trauma. The forgers had disguised the body well enough that it took state-of-the-art technology to reveal the truth. They had even taken steps to make the coffin and sarcophagus look thousands of years old. Now, it was up to Ibrahim and the police to piece together the woman's story. There aren't many legal ways to procure a dead body. The most obvious option was grave robbery. The hoaxers could have traveled to any graveyard in the dead of night, dug up a body, and wrapped the corpse. However, the climate of Pakistan would likely complicate the process of robbing a grave. In the earliest stages of decay, the body's temperature drops to match the environment, which doesn't take long in warm climates like Pakistan. The decomposition begins very quickly after death. In order for the woman to have been preserved so completely, the mummification process had to have started immediately. Based on the lack of decay, investigators estimated the woman was dead for less than 24 hours before she was mummified. The woman died from a severe spinal injury, a very sudden form of death. And for the mummification process to have started so soon afterwards, someone would have to know the woman was going to abruptly die. And the only way to know someone is going to violently die is to kill them. With this evidence, Pakistani authorities suspected the forgers didn't bother finding a recent burial and decided to turn to murder. This would have allowed them to choose a victim that was best suited for their hoax. Perhaps the forgers chose the woman because she was small. At only 4 feet 7 inches, she was significantly shorter than average for a Pakistani woman. Her size would have required fewer materials. A smaller coffin and sarcophagus would have kept the costs down. Pakistani police charged Wali Mohammad Riki and Ali Akbar, the two original sellers of the fake mummy, with conspiracy to commit murder. However, while there was evidence of a violent death, it didn't necessarily implicate the two men. Furthermore, a murder victim would likely be missed by friends and family. And yet, the woman didn't fit the description of any missing person in Pakistan. Moreover, if the woman was killed in 1996, trying to sell her body just a few years later, even as a mummy, seemed like a reckless gamble. And whoever the forgers were, they didn't seem like reckless types. They had painstakingly wrapped the mummy and aged the sarcophagus. They even went so far as to carve ancient Persian text into the artifacts. It also seemed unlikely these murderers would then put themselves forward as the sellers. This gave Riki and Akbar an obvious defense. They were harmless middlemen. The murder case fizzled out almost as soon as it began. With that, the authorities turned to some alternative theories behind the woman's violent end. There were less risky ways for procuring a body. For example, the woman could have been in an accident. It was possible the forgers had purchased their victim's body. The hoax would have required a sizable budget to produce the mummy, sarcophagus, and the golden accessories. If they had proper funding, it seemed reasonable that they could pay a bereaved family for a corpse. After all, many families in the region were struggling financially. 
Since Islamic custom encourages burial within 24 hours after death, an accidental death could be covered up quickly. But those same customs might have drawn attention. Anyone who knew about the transaction would have had to keep a terrible secret, and the very notion of selling a loved one's body would have been considered a cultural taboo. British forensic scientist Chris Milroy, who was on Ibrahim's team, believes the most likely explanation is grave robbery. It was the least likely to attract attention and the easiest to carry out. After all, nobody misses a corpse once it's in the ground. The murder or purchase options both seem possible, but would have drawn far too much attention to the crime. The forgers needed as few people involved as possible, since pulling off the hoax already required an entire team of specialists. To execute each stage of faking the mummy, the conspiracy would require at least a medical professional, a goldsmith, a stone carver, and a carpenter. Not to mention a scholar with intermediate knowledge of ancient Persian cuneiform. As with all crimes, the fewer people that knew, the better. Though their hoax ultimately unraveled, the forgers did succeed at covering their tracks. As the Pakistani authorities continued the investigation, every lead brought them to a dead end. They had Ali Akbar and Wali Muhammad Riki in custody, but the best the authorities could do was charge them with antiquity smuggling, which carried a sentence of 10 years in prison. As for Sharif Shah Baki, the man who supposedly found the coffin in the first place, he simply vanished. Authorities discovered that Baki was likely an alias. He may have been just another middleman, but it was possible Baki was the mastermind behind the entire plot. To this day, he is still at large. In 2008, a Pakistani nonprofit organization called the Edi Foundation finally laid the so-called Persian mummy to rest, 12 years after she died. At the time of her burial, the woman's origin was as much a mystery as when she was discovered. It's almost certain we'll never know the name of the woman at the center of an international hoax, but today she's finally at peace. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the Persian mummy, amongst the many sources we used, we found the BBC documentary, The Mystery of the Persian Mummy, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Andrew Messer and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.
Hi, listeners. It's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.